Let's just get right down to business. The Joe Roberts Show. This, this is The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. On today's show, we have Hosan, the CEO and founder of Seymour. We're going to discuss Seymour and the user experience for crypto consumers and how it will scale. Hosan, let's start by giving us some insights into your impressive background. Thanks for having me, Joe. Uh, it's exciting to discuss DeFi and where we are going rather than where we are coming from, but happy to talk about uh, past as well. Yeah, I mean, we interview a lot of different projects and it's always interesting to hear someone's background and kind of what prompted them to start what they're working on today. So, you know, what is it that is kind of in your background that led you up to this? Yeah, it's kind of, I think, a confluence of different events. I think core of it is really desiring a space that has potential to growth. So I came to U.S. in 2008. I was an electrical engineering student. 2009, I saw a poster that said, uh, in nine years, data science is going to be the hottest job in the market. I had no idea what data science was. But I kind of switched and did a whole bunch of courses and stuff. But they were right. 2017, it was the hottest job in the market. So I feel like going toward that type of you know, area that really has gross potential it has been a driver. And I was lucky to get a job at Google and just seeing like how ad tech has been, you know, beaten to death by all these big players. I didn't see that much of a growth opportunity there. However, just earning myself a little bit more money than to like, you know, that needed to save or do investment. I just realized there's just so little done in the technology for finance and compared to everything else. So I got really interested in it. I got interested in like at the same time, Bitcoin, Ethereum since 2015, 16. But like back then, blockchain and DeFi didn't exist. Blockchain existed, but was not good enough to like really be able to build a financial system on top of it. There was theory of it, but not much in practice. So I jumped out of Google and did this startup, which was more on traditional finance and was supposed to help people with their finances. Our motto was like champion of your money. It was a good experience. It grew pretty fast, showing that basically people were really looking for someone to fight for them in, a, in the really uneven battle with like big, big banks. And it was, it was kind of a, a, a successful growth pattern and it was acquired by Goldman Sachs, which is now Marcus app. Uh, but the overall learning from that experience was, hey, if you want to build something to help billions of people with their finances, you ain't going to succeed on the legacy financial rates. So it's kind of a hard way to learn. But at the same time, it was kind of just a, a lot of good learning from just building a product of it, marketing it, and then to the, to the you know, acquisition side of it. But you know, coming out of that, and seeing, you know, blockchain being a little bit more mature, it totally made sense to me that, you know, future of financial systems and fintech is going to be on blockchain. So we started the company in 2018, but back then, I don't know, if you look at the charts of Bitcoin, we started 2018, November, it's literally the bottom of the <laughs> market, you know. So retail was pretty burned out. So we focused on B2B and creating basically like saying, okay, these data is out there. A lot of people could use it, but it's hard to access. So let's build layers that kind of makes it easy to access. And that business has been around for a couple of years now. And summer 2020, seeing all the like, you know, practicality of protocols like Uniswap, Compound, 
uh, we just said, well, it's time to build a retail product that's fully on blockchain, fully decentralized. And we started on it. Now we have an Android app, an iOS app out there, and it is fully decentralized, meaning that we use only decentralized products out there. Obviously, the fiat on ramp is the only part that you need to deal with centralized systems. But anything else, we don't touch users' assets. We only help them to use protocols out there that we do due diligence on them and make sure they're actually decentralized. So currently right now, I guess, what is the biggest problem that you guys are solving with the app? So there are two kind of major dimensions of problems. One is user experience. There's a spectrum of products out there. You have like things like Coinbase and stuff in this side that because they are like neck deep in Web 2.0, they have centralized the hell out of, you know, something that's supposed to be decentralized. So they, they are like much better user experience because with that type of, you know, Web 2.0 and centralization, you are able to give better user experience. But in the, in the right side, there's like metamasks of the world that they are kind of negative decentralized, but <laughs> not focused on the user side. And I don't think there's a contradiction between those two, but they're just the ways we know to do stuff that are super centralized. And we just need to learn our way around and that's kind of some user behavior, some like just the product cycles. It's just a mash of problems you need to deal with. But at the end of the day, you need to make it easy for the user to use it. We don't think neither corners are good because this corner doesn't work for the user and that corner doesn't deliver the decentralization value. So one dimension is the user experience. The other dimension is the really delivering decentralization and being careful with all these different things like you know, you hear a lot of these hacks and stuff. Most of them are because there's a network that has some sort of security vulnerability. And every time there's a vulnerability, you dig into it, you'll find that there's a centralized element there that either was misrepresented or ignored. So because if, if it is not centralized, then it's, what are you going to hack? You know, it's like try hacking Ethereum network or Bitcoin network. It, it's a much tougher problem. I'm not saying it's impossible. It's just much, much harder. That doesn't make sense. But when you think, make things centralized, you just build easier to like exploit a vulnerability. So two dimensions, user experience, staying to the core value of decentralization. Those are the problems we deal with it every hour, not even every day. I mean, there's a lot of times the... Uh core of the problem, actually the user and what the user does a lot of times, whether it's clicking links or providing seed phrases. Yeah. So there's some stuff that, again, like we, we are very careful. If you use our app, you won't see anything around seed phrases. You will put down a password, which is password directly to your blockchain wallet. It's not a password to see more, but we also don't make you to write down words. So it's a balance you need to strike. But we do a 2FA to kind of make sure we have a little bit more security around person who's showing up with that wallet and that password to be the right person. So it's a really good challenge to solve. Again, like to not to go all, you know, the right side of the decentralized products that make people to write down keys, hardware wallets, those things are not. And by all means, they could be a very tangible concept in 10 years or five years. But today's consumer is not used to that, you know, and they don't have a way to handle these. 
They just love these apps that you create an account and every time you lose your password, you call them up and start yeah. them. So that's the that's co. And we got to start from there. We cannot, like, you know, we, when we talk about our goals, we say we want to go to a billion users. We cannot expect teaching a billion users what the hell is a blockchain. No, I agree. So what are the basic services that you guys are offer? What's the type of customer they're coming to your platform? What are they getting out of that? We offer basically the capability to create a wallet out there on Ethereum, which also becomes Polygon. There are other blockchains that we are integrating as we go. And then on top of those, you could bring in USDC, you can lend them through protocols, both on Polygon and Ethereum. In Polygon, obviously, fees are zero or almost zero, but we cover it. So it becomes zero for you as a customer. So you could lend, you could borrow, you could stake, you could exchange, you could track your portfolio, and you could send people money, like use it as a Venmo. That's pretty much like, you know, what you expect from a banking service to provide you. What is the type of customer, I guess, that's kind of coming to the platform? Is this someone that's more just managing all their crypto buys, someone just managing a wallet looking to purchase things? Or, you know, is there... What's the best use case, I guess? So, you know, if you have multiple wallets, you can come and you can actually add them to the app. We will track it for you. We'll, we'll show you your NFTs. It's an aggregator. It works for really many different purposes. And that's the kind of core idea that this should be one-stop shop. So at the same time, in terms of like what we think about our the segment we want to go after, we really want to go after a billion users. And a billion users do not have that type of you know, knowledge, nor they like the tooling with the crypto. They just like something that's more like what they have been using. And they care about utility, you know, just offering them a transaction. You know, every time, like if you have a wallet now with your phone number, I can send you 10 bucks or a cent, or I actually sometimes send one thousandth of a cent, one thousandth of a dollar to someone. When that happens, people really realize, like, wow, this dude just sent me some money that settled in 10 seconds. And it didn't need to go through all that, you know, pipes that are 50 years old. And it's just such a, you know, change of attitude in the utility side that people look at it and say, okay, this will work for me. I will use it. They don't really need to know what the blockchain is, how it works. You know, just one line that this is powered by blockchain. The magic is because of blockchain and that's it. Otherwise, we deliver you utility. So we are very much focused on going after customers who we can actually help them. And a huge customer base in the world that is underserved and none of these even crypto products are looking into them is underbanked and unbanked. You know, in, in Americas, US and Latin America and Canada, take that, that's a billion people. Take another 1.3, whatever, like something around that from India, like the total is 2.5 billion people. Of those 2.5 billion, half of them have internet. And most of them have an Android that they can download our app. And they can download our app today and create this wallet and they have some dollars in there that we send them actually as a kind of something to start, a couple of dollars. Under three minutes, any of these billion people can download our app and have a banking service that they generally don't have access to. 
and be able to land or exchange just immediately in that three minutes. That's how long it takes to set up Seymour if you go through it. We give you money and we, give, we allow you to test something. So that's what we think. We want to bank that billion people. And we have the product. And product works because it's built on the most powerful financial backbone that we have, human has ever built on blockchain. And, and just to kind of allude on the power of that, even though it costs us almost nothing to run this, Ethereum network costs something around $30 million a day to maintain. That's the most expensive backend to run. But the beauty of it is we don't pay for it. Everybody pays for it. So, and that way, that's how you break out of this unit economics and that allows you to go and serve this billion people. So that's our segment. We want to go, we want to go bank those and we have the product that works for them. So it's just really from here it is really going and showing them the utility, showing them how they can send money across the border without, without needing to pay 10% of it to fees to this company that has existed from hundreds of years ago. So that's a month of work. You're telling literally somebody who has immigrated and working in this country to like, you know, provide for their family that you work one month for the system to just handle your money a year. That's so awful and unfair. So, and we, we think that we can go after these different utilities, help these different communities and build up our brand by basically banking a billion people. And how do you think the uh, current Ethereum network fees impact the users? Well, that's the reason we, we, have, we have implemented Polygon. So you create a wallet on Ethereum, you have a wallet on Polygon. And Polygon has almost near zero fees. And we cover that actually, that little fee. So you can literally send and do transactions in our app with zero fees. You can do exchange, you can do lending, you can do borrowing, you can do transfers, no fees. It is on Polygon. And when we onboard you, send your cash, we, we do it to Polygon. Ethereum network is kind of a, like a more expensive backbone, but it's more secure. So if you have money, move like you have, you have enough of it to just worse, like to keep secure. It's more like a savings account. You know, these things are kind of starting to formalize themselves. Like, like Polygon is maybe more like a checking account or your Venmo. <laughs> and then Ethereum is like more your savings account and like your, you know, your bank account. So you, you don't do transactions every day from that. So, but it is safer, but then you have the ch- checking, you have the, your trading account. That's kind of lower amount of money, but more activities. It's forming itself. And we, we have to sit here and try to again, like shoehorn what, what coming, what's coming to like what, what people are used to. It's, it's, it's a fun thing to do as long as you know you see the utilities to pick up but yeah on the gas fees i think it's a solved problem honestly it's clear what is what is fast what is secure and the combination that we offer we always have these different shifts and you know solana is obviously in a lot of conversation right now and what does your maybe roadmap look like to onboard these different blockchains and how do you go through the thought process of which ones we have actually structured the whole company from perspective of we have a DeFi research team that we identify these platforms. We have we have memos and we have discussions like on like can dig you like Solana versus Polygon. I can dig like Arbitrum versus Polygon. All these like Bitcoin Lightning versus other faster ways of transacting. NFT platforms, Flow, 
Polygon shows up in most of the conversations. So that's probably one of the reasons you see them in the app. So we have a very research-focused team that every day is on Twitter, on these like different discords and stuff, figuring out what's the new thing that's coming and what's going on. And then we have a DeFi engineering team that actually identifies the engineering viability of those, the good ideas that have some sort of trendy or like consumer viability. And then we have a kind of backend effort that like scopes the more like in terms of scalability of the solution and this from our app side. And then we have the UX side that kind of takes on the pushing it out. And we are structured kind of top down, like the top is DeFi and bottom is like product. We're not reverse of it. We don't sit down and say, hey, we need a, you know, amazing trading tile. Let's just not go build a blockchain for it. No, we actually look out there. We say, what's the best thing we can put in front of the consumer? And we have a system that identifies that and pushes it in front of the consumer. And we think that product development gives us like a lot of, a ton of agility. We, we launched Polygon like months before, you know, some of the other guys in the space that they have been advertising that we are going to come up with Polygon. Like, dude, just identify it. Like we have been working on Polygon and I, like from the time it was Matic, that's my joke today. So. Yeah. <laughs> so we didn't wait for it to rename. So you can understand, I mean, the beauty of this thing is you need to like really consider in your product development that this is a grassroots movement from both the consumer side and developer side. People out there are building these things. Uniswap, like all these other products, they are really driven by developers who are innovating out there, not like a systematic company, like big players in the space driving these. So, and you need to like sit there and listen to them carefully, figure out what's coming, figure out how you can seamlessly integrate them and put them in front of your consumer. And that thesis is at the core of our business. I mean, how far out do you think, or what's it going to take to achieve where somebody's just using the app? And obviously, like you mentioned, they don't really know what's happening behind the scenes, but they're sending it at the cheapest transaction. Maybe they're going cross-chain or some type of thing where they're not used to today. I mean, how far out are we from that occurring? We have been building toward that. And what would it be is that users don't need to know what chain is this asset on. Like their NFT is on Flow, but their USDC is on Polygon and their staked Ethereum is on L1 Ethereum. So that's how I do my stuff. And I think if I'm going to bring a billion people on board of my app, I don't think I'm going to go one by one and tell them what the hell is going on under the hood. But they will see the value and they will see that what's the, you know, the best and brightest working for them. So, but in terms of like us doing that, we are already, you know, on top of it. Like right now, like your assets are across Polygon and Ethereum and they're like, we have a pipeline of blockchains. We look at the viabilities, all right? For example, Solana, I know the price went 10X, but at the same time, when we looked into Solana, it didn't have DeFi. I couldn't offer real DeFi on Solana. I mean, it has now more stuff and we just consider on practicality. We are, we are that literally that meme that says, you know, I'm in it for the tech. <laughs> so we, we are in it for the tech, believe it or not. But we do hold, we do hold this stuff as well. But, but the idea is that it has to work for the customer. And the, lots of those price actions are on the, you know, venture side, the speculation. 
So it's funny because, you know, this is what I've learned. Maybe it's good to share. When we look at two blockchains to choose, we are going to go with the one that's more mature and actually practical, right? But the one that is less mature but has potential to mature, that's going to grow more in price. So these things are actually a little bit of orthogonal concepts because if it has, if it has matured up, then there's no risk of, oh, how, how this is going to end up. Like you learn things like that, which is which is pretty pretty insightful. So, but like we have to stay on the on our in our lanes of sticking to the technology that works rather than potential technology that will rally five ten x. Maybe you could give us a few points in which you guys are underwriting what actually works, and what are those things that you're looking at to determine that? Yeah, so there are multiple different regimes you need to consider right there's a tech side of it and capabilities you know and the capabilities to have usdc for example capabilities to do lending to do exchange to do to do staking and there is also a component that we look into it carefully again if you are going to a billion people you ought to make it safe right so and what does it mean so that has two meanings for us one is we have a due diligence. We basically have a, it's obviously a small startup, but have a very strict way of everybody agreeing that this thing is not centralized. And the moment we see a sign of it or even a behavior that gets it closer to a centralized effort that can hurt our customers, we just drop. It. For example, we drop Compound. We had it, but then some stuff happened. We like, team brought it up. It's also a tough thing to, you know, if you want to take the side of centralizing platforms, it's hard. If there's an evidence that we don't think it would be, you know, in the best interest of the user from a decentralization perspective, we just drop it. It's nothing against them. It's just we have a pretty clear goals of anything we do. First of all, we run our own nodes. We do not depend on any third party in doing what we do. And if the protocol that we are dealing with can be influenced by individuals or a group, we don't do it. And if we realize it can, and sometimes they are manager seats and things like that, it's, it's easier to flesh it out from code. But sometimes you see it more in the crooks of like how, how things are done. And sometimes it is done on Twitter, you know. <laughs> it's the things you need to monitor for and... I'm not saying we're perfect, but but I'm saying I'm just giving you an example. And we might have done that for good or not, but it's a process that we need to stick to. And if we we sense it, we will remove it. And it goes hand in hand with the regulatory side of it, you know, because some of these regulatory frameworks are actually, most of them are created around protecting consumer, right? We could sit here and argue like how they apply and, you know, the, the laws being old and so and so forth but at the same time there are lots of rug pulls and lots of like tokens that you know they mean nothing and they come in and they use something and they steal people's money so you need to be careful with those so it's a long process from the really technical feasibility to the other corner of like having a judgment around if this thing is you know viable from frameworks that we think we should be sticking to so but we go through all of those and it's a dynamic thing. Sometimes we have added something and then we've removed. 
Sometimes we decided not to add something, and eventually we realized they, they made it more decentralized. And most of platforms have that attitude. They often start in a centralized fashion, one way or the other, but like start kind of opening up, and we monitor for that as well. What tokens do people have access to currently through the app? So you need to look at the list, and we also have a location-based type of logic. So uh, we build like these controls a little bit latently, but it does impact things. So it depends where you are looking from. But it should have like again, what we try to do is build a stable platform as a banking service, rather than build a like a platform that's for volatility and gaining from trading and things like that. Those are two different regimes in our opinion. And we do stick to things that to me, like the fact that you can hold USDC and lend it or borrow against your crypto in USDC and use that is a bigger future and bigger component than offering like 20 coins, new coins that you know people can trade. So but we do cover major things and cover have some sort of coverage parity around other incumbents in the space in US. So we we try not to miss on those. But at the same time, you're not going to find strange things on our platform. You're not, and that's not our value prop. Some platforms do have users because they have novelty on the assets. We don't have novelty in the asset direction. And what are the three, maybe give me three key differentiators between Seymour and a traditional bank? That's a great question. So you asked for three? Hey. <laughs> Well, let me try to formalize that. Maybe we'll get three out of it. I can probably talk about a lot of things. But I think one core difference is the backend. So a bank, a traditional bank needs to hold their own backend. We don't. We are sharing a backend with the world. Now, the advantage here is you can compare it with internet and internet, right? So uh, there's just a value for using infrastructure that others also help you to maintain. So those infrastructures are pretty costly and it costs them banks a lot of money to own their own. So that's kind of just in terms of like openness of the backend. And you hear all these open banking discussion that they think they're going to do better. I don't disagree with them, but if you want open banking, hey, take a look at Ethereum. So you don't need to approach it from like the banking perspective. You can approach it from the actual and open framework that exists. So that's kind of at the level that even if banks today use the best development out there. But the second thing is banks do not have access to the best development. Good engineers go to Google, go to Facebook. Good engineers these days go to crypto, right? So their platforms are legacy. They're already stuck with something that's 40, 50 years old. So even if they were, I argue that even if they were using the best and brightest, they will lose to the open banking that we are on, actual open banking. But, but they are also stuck with a lot of legacy technologies. So that's the second thing. And the third thing I think is super important is not only they're stuck with the technology side, but they're stuck with business models that they cannot get out of. This business models around fees. Business models around like US banking system charged every American 3% on average. 
but that is 10% for lower income. Guess who is paying the overdraft fees? Who's paying the high APRs? That's the person who's making working three jobs and making this small amount of money and not being able to pay like be on time. And then the banks gets in and charges you another $37 or $35, whatever overdraft fee. So that's the system business model that you cannot cut through. Even if you have the technology, the best and brightest, and those practices are super hard to change on the banking side. But hey, on crypto side, people are coming up with new business models every day. Like every every freaking like blockchain has their own way of like, you know, structuring these things the way they kind of now Ethereum is doing all kind of new ways of like burning fees. You cannot do that type of level of innovation on business model with the banking services. It's absolutely impossible. And I'm telling you this from, you know, learning, trying to do some of that. You know, most of fintech are built on top of those business models that they need to work with fees on credit cards or lead generations or like fees, overdraft fees and stuff. So, and anything you're building, you're stuck with, with, with that business model. So the business model is actually super important. Even if they kind of really went and changed the tech, even if they moved on Ethereum, you know, sticking to their business models is still going to be a problem. But here at Seymour, we really think very flexibly about business model. We think there's a way that you can actually build a self-sustainable banking service by actually just staking revenues and by the revenues you get from the protocol because you're doing a service to the world. So for a bank, here's a funny thing. For a bank, the backend, maintaining backend is a costly, right? Because you're running it in your basement and you need to pay for it. For us, if we are a staker on Ethereum network, maintaining our own backend makes us money. That's a paradigm shift in business model. And that's nothing to sneeze at. That is literally the one business model shift that I think is going to really enable DeFi to go far. Because by running a costly backend, you are actually, I said that we don't pay for it, but we actually earn from it. And that is because you are making it inclusive. You're running it for other people as well. You're not making it exclusive so that you it only runs for you as JP Morgan, as runs for you as another company. You are running it for the community and everybody accesses it. Hence, everybody kind of contributes to you and you get paid. So it's, it takes a little bit of time to really digest these. But when you have dealt with like the banking system and you see their operational structure, and then you look at like something like what we are running here, and I'm making money from the backend that is costing $30 million a day to run. So I think that business model basically turned upside down really makes us super powerful. And then there are tons of things on top of it. You know, there's all these now like gaining for liquidity providing, like all kinds of models that it just comes out. You know, you just opened up like a lot of creativity, that tens of thousands of developers and like designers now coming up with brilliant ideas while you're sitting there in your in your bank and there's you're just keep beating up people that where are the fee revenues that why are they going now? So that's like really like a kind of a big thing to consider as. You know, these are brilliant people, people who work for banks, run banks. They're pretty smart people. 
But once you're stuck with those three layers, right, you're stuck with closed banking versus open banking, you're stuck with old legacy versus new tech, and you're stuck with like business models versus like this whole crazy idea of running a decentralized platform that can actually pay you for running. So those three things is really tough to fight out from. And at the same time, they really enable us to go to the segment that these people would never touch. Yeah, I mean, beyond the staking, right? One of the biggest questions always is, is how come a bank is paying what's called, you know, whatever, uh, certain basis points where in DeFi, you're able to get six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 15%. I mean, where is that yield coming from? Is it safe? Can clients insure their transactions? Look, I mean, let's address these one by one. So insuring transactions, okay? So look, banking system has nothing technologically nor business-wise that makes them capable of the safety. It is only U.S. government that basically stands up and says, I'm going to back the bank up because I don't want to let them kind of go down because it's it's an instability issue. So their only security is because U.S. government is backing them up. So don't give them more credit than that. All right? Let's just make that stop there. And believe me, for U.S. government to back up blockchains after they kind of see it, you know, that it's a better alternative, it's not going to take that long. It will be a process, but it will come through. That's really something that this country time and again has showed with the new technologies. We are not like, we don't ban stuff. We look at the merits and there's enough voices out there to fight for pushing a merit to do the job that they want to do. So in terms of that, there's really like high level of it. It's only FDIC and US government backing it up. They're going to start backing companies like us up after we do the right things in terms of what is needed. But I believe that's going to be happening and hopefully we will be one of the companies who are leading it. There are other companies who are leading this. There are lots of efforts out there. And there are like senators who are really in for this. There's like from the administration side, they are seeing the inclusive side of it. And from like the, you know, it's kind of bipartisan. One one sees the inclusive side of it. The other sees the individual ownership side of it. It really aligns with like American values. So now that aside, so in terms of like beyond that, every credit card company has like a percent, half a percent, a percent loss because of all these fraud. So they make revenue and they cover some of it with some of the fraud. So when when you say like transaction, like try reversing an ACH transaction, like everybody says like you cannot reverse blockchain transaction, try reversing an ACH and then like, it's not impossible, but it is super high. Like, I don't know if you saw the story, Citibank made a mistake, sent like, I don't know, like 900 million or $500 million (laughs) from clients. They haven't collected the money yet. They went to court and they couldn't like reverse some of these ACH because clients were like, well, you send me the money. I mean, I'm not giving back. It's not like ACH is reversible, hence like done. No, it's not that. It's not. And the fact that, you know, these people put aside some percent of their profits to cover for fraud, I can do that too. You know, if I have a good customer that, I mean, I, I, I have a relationship with them. And if, if a transaction goes wrong, I can be generous about that too, the same way they are. 
there's no reason we cannot cover for some of those losses if they are for good reason, right? If there's like fraud, if there's like real mistakes that as you kind of improve these platforms, you you get them you get them sorted out. So what I'm just trying to tell you is that we can do what they do. And as far as the, like, you know, the really big security or like safety thing that it's not banks, it's U.S. government. And we'll get that too. I mean, as this space matures, I think U.S. government will support the better alternative. Now, from a transaction fees, what do the users of the app pay? And on the other side of that is how does Seymour make revenue sustain itself? So in terms of like the whatever is happening on Polygon, there's no network fee. So that's zero. So we make money from different revenue. We have different revenue streams. We have the B2B side that we sell data and infrastructure. We make money from it because we run these nodes. We have these things. Why not share it with other folks and get money from it? So we make money from our own crypto reserves as well as staking them. And that's what I alluded to, like making money from your infrastructure rather than actually infrastructure costing you money. And those on their own, you know, if you think about Amazon for a long time, AWS paid for the overhead, right? So those on their own are powerful revenue streams as we grow. So, but in terms of like, our relationship with retail customer, we don't have a concept of fee the same way that like these trading platforms would do. Like if you bought like $10,000 worth of Ethereum and it's 5,000, you still pay a percent and a half fee to get out. We don't do that. So our view is we want to take all these methods that have worked for rich people and offer it to everybody else. And in the world of like basically high net worth, the way it works for them the fees are generally is like, if we added value, we get fees. If not, we don't, right? So I'm here a service. So what that means and the way we thought about it is, well, if we created value for someone, we will suggest them a tip because we provide the service. If they made $10,000, we suggest them a tip. They want to tip us $1,000 of that. That's great. If you basically make part of the value you've created for the customer and suggest it to them rather than like forcing it to them, you will have a pretty good culture as well as revenue stream from that. And by the way, this is just like every other service. You know, you go to a restaurant, how many times you haven't, you don't tip, right? So it becomes part of culture, but it has to be for the value that created, not for every transaction. And this type of revenue stream also kind of promotes more like hodling and long-term stability rather than trading. Because if you're charging for every trade, like you're building basically, you're falling on your own sword. You're building a revenue model. It's the same business model that I talked about, you know. So if you want to go with the old ways of the business models, you are going to end up with the kind of old issues. So you're going to try to build platforms that are optimized around making people to trade more and do those things and going after traders, which is a smaller segment. But if you make it to be kind of for the value added, I would prefer my customer to like stake a whole bunch of Ethereum, that Ethereum to double in value. And then on top of that 5% from the staking. So, and I I would enjoy taking like, you know, 10% of that if they give it to me. And I think as we add the value, there will be a culture of sharing that. But at the end of the day, we have worked out the unit economics of this. And 
there is a self-sustainable banking service you can create with just the nature of blockchain and decentralization and staking. And what does, I guess, what does the roadmap look like? You mentioned a billion users. I mean, what does it take to get there and how long does that look like? So we, we have a thought around like that's our 10-year goal and we do know it's a big goal. But at the same time, we have social media that is now 4 billion users. And I mean, that took some time, but, you know, it's possible it, it happens when you build a real scale and your, your unit economics are good. Like no banking service has gone to that range. Like U.S. banking services are around like top 100 million. And the largest one is like 700 million and financial, but no how they get there it's just super centralized and like it's like centralization <laughs> hyper centralized and then you make everybody to use something as a government like we're not going to do that so then what's left is like really the disruption and the capability of like low cost technology that delivers a value so we put 10 year goal that's like and we want to have a 10 year goal we want to have a long term view not a short term cash cow type business a lot of plays in this space are around those type of short-term uh, views, which again, they're brilliant business ideas, nothing against them. But if you want to go for a billion user banking service, I think it will take some time. But in short-term also, we have aggressive goals. We do want to like be able to put this in front of more of the people that they need this, be it like moving money around, be it getting a little bit better interest on their dollars, and to think about this, there's a trillion dollar, more than a trillion dollar in cash form, paper form out there that people hold. That's mostly under mattresses. <laughs> I grew up in the country that my, my parents would, would hold like, you know, US dollar and like suitcases. Like there was no alternative and you needed to hide it somewhere. So like now imagine if we move those onto a network. So nobody is getting interest on those dollars. So they're going to be willing to, you know, lend those at a much better rate to U.S. businesses and other active businesses. So you're talking about unlocking a lot of potential as well. This is not, you know, being inclusive here helps to grow and helps to increase the capital and increase capital efficiency and increase productivity. This is not a charity work. This is really to unlock a lot of those potential. So we want to go after those in short term, like bring more of that cash onto blockchain, a lot more of transactional capacity, better lending, better rates, and be also part of the current excitement about crypto. Like people want to buy some Matic or Ethereum or Sushi or Uni, Uni or Uni. So they can do it. So on our platform as well. All right. Well, I appreciate sharing all that. I mean, we always leave off with the final question. I mean, what is one thing along your journey that you have implemented that has ultimately helped increase your net worth? What is uh, one thing that I have implemented? I have bought crypto. <laughs> <laughs> Can you, you know, uh, go into that a little more? How long have you held though? And kind of what was the success to that though? Timing, was it the length of hold or? Yeah, I, th I think it was more around like, again, I'm a technologist. I think it was just more like fascination with the technology and just, it's funny, you know, it, it kicks you if you, if you see something, I was working at Google and I was seeing all this technology working well. And then I was seeing this Ethereum thing out there. Uh, and, uh, and the first Ethereum, I'll tell you this first Ethereum I bought was like $10 or something. 
And I was in a conference that Joe Lubin was talking about. And I was like, this dude is like, he, he has a real good engineering background. And he was talking so confidently about these stuff. Like this dude is up to something. And <laughs> I started checking it out. And like this, what they were talking about was holding a lot of water. Like, and this is 2015, 16. So it was really barely launched. But I think that was the fascination. And I think I followed that drive through my last startup through this. I bet uh, in technology and probably what I suffered through in Google was like, I was not seeing the technology that I can bet in. I just saw the technology that these guys were making billions of dollars and we were all like working for them. But at the same time, I just then saw this and it really gravitated uh, like me toward it. So I probably really betting on technology and figuring out that crypto is the best bet on technology in my opinion, no financial advice. <laughs> of course, no, I appreciate that. So why don't we uh, leave off, you know, what is the best way for people to get more information about Seymour, if they want to contact you, anything you want to plug in here? Yeah, well, Seymour.com, C-M-O-R-Q.com. And uh, my email is Hossein at Seymour.com. And uh, you can reach out to us in our social media. We are on Instagram mostly, but also on Twitter. And uh, always love to hear about users. If you use the app, you get $5 just off the bat, test it around and uh, let us know any feedback. So billion users, you got to just plug $5 billion in <laughs> giveaway, right? Right. Yeah. But, but think about it. You know, I, I don't need it all to go from US dollars, right? There are other ways that just to put it in perspective, we talked like you said 5 billion, right? Yeah. This space is $3 trillion worth. 5 billion is a drop in the bucket. You can do it right. So I agree. I agree. Well, look, I, I appreciate coming out today. Everything that you shared it was great having you. I hope you enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time as well. And it was a fascinating discussion. The Joe Robert Show.